Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is James Ball. I write every week in the New European on what's happening behind the scenes in Westminster and across the world. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European... Do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European podcast from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. My name's Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you enjoy what we do, please join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On this podcast, we'll be talking about the other elephant in the room, not the Brexit elephant this time, but the lurking shadow of COVID-19 that once again threatens our livelihoods, threatens the things we take for granted in our daily lives, it threatens our lives themselves. We've got a government that likes to say things are done when they are not done. But Brexit isn't over, is it? As it causes misery for businesses and shortages for shoppers and sewage flooding into our rivers. And the pandemic isn't over either. Rising hospitalizations, more deaths, more people on ventilators. So why are the government now so reluctant to do what they said they would do? Follow the data, follow the science, bring in Plan B. Always been my favourite Dex's Midnight Runners song, that Plan B. Very good. Is the government's attitude to COVID fatally complacent or is it willfully negligent? I'm going to be talking to Dr. Joe Payak. He's an NHS Foundation Trust Hospital Governor who studies the figures every day. I'll be getting his take on this other elephant. Before that, it's been a week of fiscal matters with the budget and, sorry, fecal matter with the government's U-turn on sewage. One of these things involved a load of old crap and the other one was the government's U-turn on sewage. It's finally decided to make companies pay up for pumping untreated sewage into our rivers and off our coastline. Now, they wouldn't have been able to do this in the first place without heavy fines if we were still in the EU. And the crisis itself has been caused by Brexit, partly. The supply line issues uh, with the chemicals needed to treat the effluent in the first place. You listeners of this podcast have had some things to say about the sewage crisis. Chris Purcell says, we need to organise a large movement to stop this. Jonathan Polly said, is this an example of the higher environmental standards we were told about post-Brexit? Ian Anderson says, this isn't happening in Scotland, where our water industry is in public ownership. And Brett Widdop said, 
This is happening because Rees Mogg and the Tories can't take us all back to the 1840s without a good cholera epidemic. But what about the budget, which is unravelling like a cheap jumper caught on a nail? Well, we'll get to that in the Hall of Shame after we'd spoken to Joe Pyack. But first, I want to tell you about an excellent new podcast from The New European. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives tells the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. It's really good, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, too, that if you want to be sure of getting a copy of our newspaper and access to our online archive, you can support The New European by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And now, Dr. Joe Payak. Now, Dr. Joe Payak is the governor of an NHS Foundation Trust Hospital, a fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry. He produces a daily piece that tracks the UK's COVID-19 data, which is published online by PMP magazine. You can see that at vip.politicsmeanspolitics.com. But this week, you can read his piece on COVID-19 and the government in denial in issue 266 of The New European or online at The New European UK. Joe, we, we've had Freedom Day three months ago. We've, we've just had a budget with Rishi Sunak, which he billed as the start of a new economy post-COVID. Are we in a post-COVID era? I really don't think we are, Steve. Um, no, I, I don't see that at all. And I'm very concerned that, uh, that that sort of language is being used. Yes, it is. I mean, it's it's extremely unhelpful, isn't it? I mean, we, we've said, I, said, I said there that you're governor of a foundation trust hospital. You've, you've been taking a keen interest in COVID data, obviously. This time around, when did you start to get concerned about the turn that the data was taking? And, and what is there in there that is to be most concerned about? I think that uh, tracking, tracking it in particular around when we were leaving uh, stage four in, in July, the 19th of July, Already at that time, numbers had been tracking up, and the the, gra- the graph that I've been plotting has been going in, in a in a, a cycle. Really, it's been up and down and up and down, and always getting concerned when there are suggestions that that it's all over. When actually you're seeing trends, more long term trends, that suggest it isn't. And one of the pieces of data, Steve, that I'm particularly interested in tracking is the number of infections that we have over a 28-day, because I think that irons out the rather well the odd data that we have, particularly, say, on a Monday when it's quite low and on a Tuesday when it could be quite high. Yes, I mean, they are sort of very worrying numbers. You obviously are concerned about the, the impact on the NHS, and that is very concerning. As we head into winter, we know there's more pressure on the NHS in winter than at other times of the year. What is, what is, what's happening in the NHS right now? What, 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 kind of, what are the issues with backlogs and how are they dealing with I mean, are they, they're not overwhelmed by COVID cases just yet, right? It's, it's difficult to give a clear picture, and things do vary. But, but my sense is from from reading and from talking with people who are in the system that actually things are quite quite tight and the the pressure is a pressure that's not seen before Uh, that that's quite clear really that uh, we've read and we see and we hear about queues of ambulances um, at accident emergency departments waiting to be able to get patients into into the department that's happening now and there are, there are some places where it's happening to an extent where an ambulance isn't able to go to the normal 
hospital that it would take a patient to. It's going to a hospital perhaps 20, 30 miles away. Mm. And obviously, hospitalizations increasing significantly, the use of ventilation beds increasing significantly. What about from a, from a personal level from you? In the, in the piece, you're, you're talking about your daughter, who I, I don't think has been affected, but she's been indirectly affected because she's like my son. She's at university, I think. And, and um, but I think your son and his partner have been affected directly, haven't they? Yes, they have. It's re- really interesting that uh, and, and I say in the piece, we, we all have personal reflections and what we found is that our daughter who's actually at imperial college which um, is is very interesting from the perspective of of the way that they respond as a university with a significant number of experts in in relevant fields i think they've done remarkably well as a university and while she's had a difficult time she's worked very hard and they and they've prepared her in, in the best way they can conversely she's got a, a friend who's also at university in london uh, and her, in, in her university, it's not so not so well resourced, I suppose. The provision that the university has, has been able to make is, is meaning that they're all pretty well back to face-to-face lectures all the time, whereas our daughter at the moment is still doing on, online, um, online lectures, online seminars. And it's, it's very good what they're doing. It's, it's by no means a walk in the park. It's hard work and they've had to work hard. What's similar in terms of the experience of both of them and their friends is the the sense they're getting that it's over mm. and they're being encouraged almost to to go and spend the money when they've got uh, spare time to go out to to um, restaurants uh, and places where where they'll meet and I guess they've got very frustrated particularly those um, those students who have been stuck in for over a year in in halls of residence away from home. And, and they're wanting to to experience life, which is one of the reasons they've gone to university. But I'm I'm really concerned about that, and I guess you might might feel the same with uh, being a parent with with uh, a child who's at university. Well, absolutely. My, I mean, my son went went um, went out. Uh, not a not an enormous clubber, but I think when the uh, in the week when the nightclubs reopened, went out with you know a group of friends, got COVID. Uh, my daughter, it was my daughter mm. who's not a student anymore. Uh, it was my daughter's birthday recently. She met up with a large group of friends for, I think, the, probably the first time in, in, you know, well over a year. Next week, got COVID. Um, yeah. So the idea that this is, the idea that this is, is over is, uh, is um, not, it's not really, uh, it's not really a going concern, is it? I was just going to continue with the, the second part of your question, because Please. our son and, and his partner uh, have had a completely different experience and very concerning. We haven't, haven't seen them. We haven't seen them since before COVID uh, began here. Uh, they're living in a flat in, in London. And they both got long COVID back in March 2020. And they, they, I think they're in a really difficult place. And the NHS are doing the best they can, but we know that the NHS is stretched. It was stretched before the pandemic. And there simply isn't the expertise or the capacity or the, the ability to cope and support people who are suffering from long COVID, which we're learning more about every day. And, and there's some great work that's being done there. And, and the 
NHS are doing the best they can, but they are finding that they're waiting weeks before they can see somebody. They have to travel a long distance to get to where they're going, which is worrying for them because they're suffering from long COVID uh, and they're worried about getting reinfected or spreading whatever they, they may have. But the symptoms worry me, Steve, the symptoms that they're having. And, and what are those? What are those symptoms, Joe? Well, they there are so many. They um, they have to sleep during the day. They get exhausted mentally and physically. They're both very active people. One one was an actress who was touring, and and the other um, had a, had a very busy life working in in IT and, and promotions. Um, but they they find that they're tired so much. Um, they're anxious. They have a heartbeat that suddenly rises. They find themselves breathless. They get strange feelings in their chests. They can't walk anywhere because they, when they do, they, they feel very, very bad physically. Um, so it, it's affecting many other symptoms as well. But yes, it's, it, it's worrying. And as, I'm, as I alluded to, really, there isn't the expertise out there, let alone the capacity to cope with people who are experiencing this. It's it's very um, it's very bitty, I think, isn't it? it? Depends where you are in the country, yes. whether you're near a trust that has got that capacity and that knowledge, or whether you're not. And, and most won't have it. So you know, we're concerned about long COVID. We're concerned about our children. We're concerned about the NHS. We're concerned about the data. Why are the government not as concerned as you and I are about this? My, my sense, again, of this, maybe there are contributory factors, but I think one of the, the big ones that seems to come across is that there's something about political dogma here, that, the, that whether it's as simple as there's a group, a rump within the Conservative Party that are not, a, not prepared to accept the sort of mitigations that we want for a variety of reasons. I can only assume some of them are financial. Um, whether that's part of it, I don't know. I sense, I sense it might be. But actually, we've been here before, haven't we, Steve? We were here back in September. And I, I remember speaking online to Jeremy Farrow back in, I think it was back in September of 2020, um, when the sage advice to have that 14-day circuit break was first ignored. And he was very clear that um, the advice was there and government didn't take it. Um, actually, it's not fair to speak on his behalf. He's not here. But that's my sense, let's say, that that's what he was saying. And sure enough, we had uh, a huge upsurge of cases and deaths, as we know. And then, lo and behold, SAGE have been, and the various subcommittees have been indicating that there's a risk that this might all be happening again. But, but when you read through the papers, and I guess you'll have read through them as well, when you can find them, they're often two, three, four, four weeks after the date of the meeting. Sometimes I can understand why, but um, that doesn't help you if you're a member of the public trying to work, work out what's actually going on. And I sense a little bit that they, they are being prevented whether that's deliberate or whether there's a sense that they can't speak out there. They're certainly saying in some of their reports what we're seeing, that there's a risk that there will be greater hospitalizations. And if we've got greater greater cases, we're going to get greater hospitalizations. And I think that's where we're heading. Yes, it is. I mean, they, they have flagged up concerns about the government has flagged up concerns about the economy this week. They've sort of leaked like everything else. They've leaked, they've leaked that they, they thought that the, the cost of plan B would be 18 billion pounds to mm. 18 billion pound hit to the to the economy i mean that, yes. that's you could get two you could buy two 
floor test and trace systems with exactly. 18 billion uh, with 18 billion pounds or half half of one rather um, <laughs> um the, you mentioned in your piece i mean there are you mentioned a, a critical report in your piece that we there, there's now been a, a, another critical report hasn't there the, the public accounts committee yes. report into test and trace which did cost 37 billion failed to cut in, infection rates which was its primary objective what part of of the, the the first report on the coronavirus lessons uh, learned to date? What, what what stuck out from 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 that for you? And have those lessons been learned? Do you think? I don't think they have. I think from a scientific perspective, what stands out at, for me is the the failure to address issues regarding face coverings, ventilation, and the fact that the virus is airborne, and the failure to to identify that in the report, I don't know why that happened. I I have a sense also that we haven't had the the scientific advice or haven't taken note of the scientific advice in a broad enough range of science disciplines, Steve. And I think there there are some weaknesses, and I I may be being unfair in saying this, but I think there may be some weaknesses in our own um, United Kingdom structure for science, and, and the report does mention this, where we have not paid enough attention to fluid dynamics and physics. I'm sorry if that that's starting to sound a little bit technical. It probably isn't, but it's just the flow of the virus, the way it is transmitted in the air is something that we've ignored. We've been great about developing vaccines and we've been great about understanding uh, those sorts of aspects um, in in relation to the virus. But we just haven't got to grips with the fact that if you're in a room with someone else and it's in an enclosed space and you're not wearing a mask and that person is infected or you're infected, the, the aerosol that's come from your breath could be hanging in the air or hung in the air for many minutes and you could be breathing in or breathing out and infecting someone or becoming infected. So I'm I'm surprised that wasn't mentioned. I know it wasn't necessarily the purpose of it, but it wasn't mentioned in a way that, that I could see. Yes. I mean, it's an it's an interesting report, isn't it? The, the, the first half of it the, is is quite damning. Then there's then there's some praise for the the, the vaccine rollout, which of course was a, a, a tremendous thing. It was hailed as a game changer at the time. It was done effectively. Yet they the government seems to have put almost everything into vaccines as the the only way out of this. And then here we are with rising cases, a faltering rollout. What has gone wrong with with the vaccine program, and, and how do we fix that? Is it is it is it go, is it a government failing? Is it an NHS failing? What, what's what's happening there? Good question. I don't think it's an NHS failing. Uh, NHS has got lots of failings, and I speak as someone who who's a strong supporter of the NHS. But I think this is a political issue, and I think that been delays in decisions. We have taken a very careful, slow um, view about whether we should extend the vaccine, first of all, to 16 and 17 year olds, but then to 12 to to, to 15 year olds. And I don't think that's helped. I don't know, Steve, whether you've got a sense from elsewhere, whether there's there are issues about supply of the vaccine. It's always a doubt in my mind, have we got enough of the vaccine? I'm, I'm getting reports from different parts of the country that some people are, are, are not getting um, the opportunity for, for vaccination that, that they would want. And we're certainly having that issue with the rollout for children. So I, I think that's been part of the problem. Um, I, I think also, and it goes back to a bit I missed when your earlier part to this question, we weren't prepared 
Mm. We simply weren't prepared. Now that for, for any pandemic, really. And, and that goes back to 2016 and beyond that. And it goes back previous health secretaries and, and previous governments. We didn't listen to all the reviews that had been undertaken and put in place what, what needed to be put in place. So there's, there's some issues there, I think, about great having, but unless you actually take action on the report, you don't get anywhere. So we, we weren't prepared for this. I think also um, we we have an issue about uh, the delay to make that decision for, for the 12 to 6, 12, 15 year olds. I'm puzzled that we haven't made it for 11 year olds. Mm. I, I really can't understand that as an ex-educationist. I, the 11 year olds are mixing with the 12 to 15 year olds in the same school. Of course they are. What are the, what are the measures that we should be taking now? One of the key ones I think is about modelling. Um, you and I will no doubt have seen the, the budget statement today. I think mm. it's absolutely disgraceful that um, MPs are sitting in a chamber as leaders of, of the country um, and irresponsibly sitting there with the majority, I think, probably were not wearing face masks. I think it's yeah. a disgrace that they're doing that. And it, it sets um, into society, it sets a view that, well, if they're doing that, it's not really an issue, is it? I'm sure. I, I know there's a debate about the effectiveness of masks, but we also know that um, masks are something, uh, are a t- type of uh, protection that have been used for decades without anyone having any uh, any sense that there was a problem that surgeons or dentists would be wearing masks or, or, or other people in, in research situations. And we know other countries do the same. So I think that's that's one thing that we need to look at. There needs to be good modelling from our politicians at all times. But I think the the other things then are if we can get the mask situation right, uh, there's the issue about physical distance. We've had the, the double speak or whatever the term is for um, stay a metre apart, uh, two metres if you can. Uh, but now don't worry about it. Well, it's rubbish. And again, it goes back to the science, I think, that we've not been taking enough account of the way that the virus can be transmitted, that it can go further than a metre, it can go further than two metres. It may be a a matter of chance whether it does in in, in the circumstance you're in, but let's not let people think that actually we're we're okay if we're a metre apart, but actually now... People are all over you if you if you go out somewhere because you don't have to keep a physical distance. And that that's something that, that has struck me as well. I wouldn't use the, the term social distance. It's physical distance. That's mm. that's what's going to make the difference. And this again, I think, is about the science. It's the physical distance between us and the person we're going to infect or the person who infects us. And, and that's where I think physics and fluid dynamics comes into it because we need to understand how it's transmitted from from one body to to another. So I think that's something that needs to change. But another vital thing I think that needs to change, apart from the attitudes at the top, is ventilation. And again, this isn't about opening a window. Scientists in, in places like Massachusetts Institute of Technology published research that showed that opening a window, actually, if you'll sit, if an affected person is sitting next to the window in a classroom and the wind blows in, mm-hmm. then people in the direct line of that person could actually be infected by the, the air coming through the window and blowing the virus into the faces of people nearby. So we have got a really difficult issue in terms of the infrastructure in our schools and investing money. We should have done this in the summer, Steve. We should have invested in schools in, in the summer. And that's not about making sure everyone opens a window. That actually could cause the problem, as I've just said. It's about making sure we've got the right kind of ventilation and we've got it in all our schools and that people understand how to use it. And we invest time in putting what's needed into to those schools. The six months we had in, 
in August or five or six months when schools in theory were closed, was time to put the right sort of engineering into schools that would deliver what they needed. And, and the same really with, with half terms that we have. That's time where we actually should be helping head teachers because we've got over 30,000 schools in this country and we're, we've got a similar number therefore of heads. How many of them are experts in, in transmission of viruses or experts in fluid flow? And just, just giving them a, a, I don't know, a piece of guidance, I don't think they've got great guidance um, on, on how to, to manage that, will not, I think, deliver what we need because people, they're not experts, teachers aren't experts in this area. So they may just think opening the window is going to sort it and they're all safe. What do you say to the people who say, well, you know, COVID may be with us, but you can live with it. It's not as serious as it used to be. It's only affecting, uh, seriously affecting people who, you know, are maybe beyond their average life expectancy anyway. It's a bit like the flu. It's annoying if you get it, but but not serious. Why is that? Why is that wrong? I don't think it's anything like the flu. And I don't think there's any evidence scientific or medical evidence that that I've read that that actually would say that that, that's the case. Uh, Politicians may want to uh, get people to believe that it's like the flu because they can get back to normal and what they call normal and and they can do what they want to do in terms of their world. But no, it's not it's not like flu and it's not affecting people like flu. As I said, going back to my own personal experience there, a son who has had been affected by COVID for 18 months or so, nearly 18 months or so, and he's not been himself. And he he and his partner, they both, I think, are incredibly depressed and fragile. Mm. And they're not alone. There are, well, there were over a million infections in this country in, in the last 28 days. That's over a million people who may be having the, the impact of long COVID. We, we, we don't know. And his symptoms, their symptoms are not symptoms of, of the flu. Um, I think that's really, um, really complacent and, and negligent. And to, to suggest that anyone can can live with that I think is um, is really irresponsible well as we know it's this is a government that likes to declare that things are, are done when they are when they are very much uh, not done uh, and we uh, we have to live with the effects just one more before I let you go it, it's been fascinating talking to you Joe if the government does nothing what does our Christmas look like what does our winter look like I'm looking at the yesterday's chart and I fear that we, I, I don't, I, know, I never predict, but I may be wrong too. But I, I do fear that the way the trends are going, particularly in the number of infections and the number of hospitalizations, that we could have a worse Christmas than we had last Christmas. Wow. I, I think that the NHS is certainly, there are many, many trusts that are in, in, in meltdown. I, I know that from, from direct conversations with people that they're experiencing every day now days that they have never ever seen before in accident and emergency departments in this country and it i don't know how well that's understood shocking 
it isn't I think it isn't really understood but uh, but we must continue to get the message out yes um, we must so so my thanks to, to Dr Joe Pyatt that was terrific stuff um, and uh, you know salutary uh, lessons for us all to, uh, to, to to learn from it to read Joe's uh, piece on the government's fatal delays in tackling Covid uh, and then also a piece by James Ball on the back benches who want to delay plan B you can pick up a copy of the new European issue 266 or you can subscribe to the new European at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe thanks Joe thanks Steve I hope I didn't waffle too much I'm sure I did it was terrific absolutely brilliant and finally it's the hall of shame where we put putrid politicians pompous pundits things that get my goat generally and for his budget Rishi Sunak is in the hall of shame forgive me if I'm wrong here but it's the best time to announce that you're cutting airline taxes on domestic flights in a tiny country like ours. It's the best time to do that, really, just a few days before you're hosting a major international summit to accelerate action on climate change. And is it wise to say that you're on the side of craft brewers and make a big noise about that when the kegs they use are too small to qualify for your new cut-in duty? Or to say that you're on the side of pubs and drinkers because you're taking 3p off the price of a pint when you know that the price of a pint is rising by more than that anyway because of a supply chain issue caused by your Brexit. And when your country's musicians are unable to tour Europe because of the expensive red tape that your Brexit has created, is it really the right time to announce that you're throwing money at a new Beatles museum in Liverpool, a city that already has two Beatles museums? Joining Rishi Sunak in the Hall of Shame, is the Environment Secretary, George Eustace, who said this about sewage in our rivers. I would swim in rivers, yes. To which I can only add, I would watch that, yes. But i tell you what I wouldn't watch. I wouldn't watch the films you've suggested about the sewage crisis, titles supplied by listeners of this podcast. Wayne Moore says Reservoir Bogs. James Kay says Scat People. Anthony Whitehead says On Golden Pong. Darren Leithley says Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And Paul Brown, I think, is the winner. Harry Potter and the Ordure of the Phoenix. And also Angels with Dirty Feces. There's nowhere to go after that, really, other than to say, I like a gad harumph. It's on Widdicombe Corner. The time, once again, when I read out the worst bits from Anne Widdicombe's terrible column in the awful Daily Express. This week, Anne is having a pop at Heavenly Hirana, Tiger, Tiger Lily Hutchins Geldof for having what she calls a daft name. Do you know, with both of uh, Heavenly Hirana, Tiger Lily Hutchins Geldof's parents being dead, I would say that having a daft name is the least of her worries, Anne, but you can carry on. Anne also says that what she calls the blatantly biased corporation are lying about how well Brexit is going. And she's saying this uh, in the Daily Express, whose recent front pages include Boris Tosin of the big Brexit bonus, PM says Brexit is unlocking our true potential and you don't don't blame the driver crisis on Brexit. So I wonder who is really lying about Brexit there. But foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is Anne-Marie Trevelyan. And with everything else that's been going on this week, you might have missed the details of our historic trade deal with New Zealand. The good news is that the dealers defied the low expectations which came in after the trade pact that we did with Australia earlier this year offered a tiny jump in UK exports. The bad news is that it's defied those low expectations by being even worse than the Australian deal. It gives New Zealand a chance to increase its exports to the UK fivefold 
But the upside for us, the British economy, is a rise of 0.01%. It's not even scratching the surface of the 6.5% fall in exports to the EU since Brexit. And in any case, the Australian agreement has now stalled. British sheep farmers would be happy to see the New Zealand trade deal stall too. It threatens to flood our markets with intensively produced cheap lamb while letting British producers go to the wall. It's another triumph from Liz Truss. It's been called a disgrace. It's been called completely at odds with everything the government has promised to do to safeguard our farmers and protect British consumers. And who said that? Pinko said that. It was the former Tory agriculture minister, Lord Debon. You'd expect the government that agreed such a deal to be pretty sheepish about it, but not Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the International Trade Secretary. She said, I'm not at all concerned that Northumberland farmers will be at risk. Different seasons. It's the different, a different side of the world, another side of the world. She continued, when I'm eating Northumberland lamb at Easter, I won't be eating New Zealand lamb, but now I might be able to have some lovely New Zealand lamb for my Sunday lunch in autumn. And this has gone down particularly badly. And this is why, because the British sheep farming industry operates year round. The prime time for grass fed British lamb is in the autumn. Oh, and British lamb can be stored year round in any freezer, except of course the ones that Anne-Marie's boss, the prime minister, appears to be hiding in. That was the new European podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. Episodes of this podcast are released every Thursday. If you enjoyed it, subscribe and rate and review it on your podcatcher of choice. If you'd like more podcasts from the New European, I can recommend Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, available where you got this podcast. And when, please support us. Visit our website. Join us by subscribing. Theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On social media, join our Facebook readers group. You can follow us on Twitter at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.